Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about the challenges of artificial intelligence. We relate the story of a nearsighted man who ordered too many glasses. We report on the growing habit of watching TV with subtitles. Paul once again tries to stump the older old dog, and we introduce you to your next therapist, a robot. The old dog's conversation is with Les Switzer, a man who made a difference in South Africa on his way to three rewarding careers. Stay with us. Well, Paul, it's Yo. time again. What's on your mind today? Oh, it's that time. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting from my point of view, and you, you're going to have to join in, or this could be a very short segment. Um, <laughs> we have a pod nugget in today's episode, uh, again, about artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. This is something we're going to be wrestling with for the next several decades. The premise here is that uh, sometime in the near future, we are going to have therapists that are chatbots, <laughs> not real people. I guess they're non-directive therapists that uh, is very good at asking questions. Well, why, uh, why do you say that? Interesting. Tell me some more. I don't know. I don't know. You got any thoughts on that? We're constantly being bombarded with more and more IT, right? And uh, we just don't know where it's all going to lead. My point is the the technological advances in artificial intelligence are exceeding uh, our ethics. We don't know how to handle some of these options that are out there until after they're in the marketplace. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that doesn't make you sleep less at night? Well, I take a pill for that. Uh-huh. Okay. But uh, in the absence of that, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I get more and more nervous about the fact that I don't know what is controlling my life. I mean, how do you know that I'm t- actually talking to you right now, huh? Uh, I, I've always suspected you were a cartoon character. Well, so is my wife, frankly. Uh, uh, well, you know what? Uh, uh, I don't want to... Uh, be, be the one that goes, uh, we're not ready for that. No, you can't do that. We need to be asking ethical questions whenever some of these things come up. You know, for example, the company that we highlight in our pod nugget uh, has created what they call the, a best friend. Yeah. And the more you talk to this best friend, the best friend learns more about you. more about you. And is a good listener mm-hmm. and is very encouraging. It's electronic. It's not real. And so what the the article I was reading said is that some people are developing attachments for these digital creatures. Uh, I don't know. Would you like to have a digital best friend, somebody you would talk to? (laughs) 
frankly, people are kind of looking for something that is missing from their lives. And obviously, they are missing friendship. They are missing companionship. They're missing the kind of personal connection. And I find that that is particularly true as you get older and older. Uh, so what you are saying is that in, in some cases, uh, an artificial friend is better than no friend. Is that what you mean? Yes, I, I think so. I guess I can buy that. If these people are really cherishing the artificial friendship, then what harm? What harm is there? Um, but we'll probably have to eventually deal with electronic marriages. Somebody <laughs> wanting to, uh, you know, have a permanent relationship with this electronic BC. <laughs> If you need reading glasses, be careful of the fine print when you are ordering reading glasses. This pod nugget is from Sky News for March 30th, 2023. Tom Arnold from Cornwall, England, thought he was ordering a dozen pairs of reading glasses online. Instead, he ended up ordering a dozen sets of five pairs of reading glasses. The result was an impressive stack of 60 pairs of reading glasses delivered to his home. Now, this is not an earth-shattering mistake. I mean, the guy needed reading glasses, and he misread the print on the order form. Hey, a simple mistake. Except his son Tom posted a picture of his dad on social media next to the stack of glasses. The post went viral on Twitter, and get this, accumulated 2 million views. So, Tom Arnold had to endure dozens of funny Twitter comments about his eyesight and an interview request from BBC News. Tom got through it all with a sense of humor. He plans to return 50 of the 60 pairs that were delivered and get on with his life. I must say, I sympathize with poor Tom Arnold. I need reading glasses, and I have several sets strategically placed near locations where I may encounter fine print. And like Tom, I order multiple pairs at a time, although six is my current limit. I think the only mistake you made, Tom, was posing for the picture that your son took. I wonder how many pairs of glasses he wore. If you have trouble hearing some of the dialogue in a movie at home, you've probably done what many of the home audience does. They turn on subtitles. This pod nugget is from The Guardian for January 27th, 2023. Last year, Netflix revealed that 40% of its global users have subtitles on all the time. If you are switching on subtitles because you simply can't make out what the actors are saying... It's probably not your ears that are to blame. The problem starts on the movie set. In the past, actors had to project loudly towards a fixed microphone. Nowadays, actors have their own individual mics, which allows for a more intimate, perhaps even a more mumbling style of acting. As audio tech becomes more sophisticated, filmmakers have started including more sound. This increased level of sound is tuned for the expensive sound systems in a movie theater. It can become muddy when played on your television. Even if you have a good quality speaker system with your TV, as I do, it still has to be tuned for the room, which most people don't do. And finally, we must admit that our aging boomer ears aren't quite what they used to be. Subtitles are the way to go. Think of it as an immersive experience. 
Stand by, listeners. It's time for that ritual of humiliation and obscure knowledge called Stump the Older Old Dog. Oh, boy. In this case, we are talking about Jim Conlon. The one stumping the older dog is the younger old dog, Paul Menzel. That would be me. So, Jim, did you get a good night's rest last night? I did. Are you ready to put your prevagen to the test? I'm not. <laughs> Our subject today is obscure laws on the books. Oh, perfect. You decide if the law I state is true or false. Are you ready? True. <laughs> not yet. Oh, that wasn't the question. Oh, okay. Here we go. Number one, in Tennessee, it is illegal to sell hollow logs. True or false? Absolutely true. You're right. I should keep score on this. <laughs> you actually got one, Jim. Number two. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the home of Heinz Foods, there is a legal way to spell ketchup. That is K-E-T-C-H-U-P. True or false? Yeah, that's true also. Uh, false. Ah. Number three. In Wisconsin, entering and using another man's ice house to fish is considered theft of services, true or false? False. That one is correct. Okay, you got two now. You're on a roll. Number four. In Minnesota, it is illegal to cross state lines with a bird on your head. True or false? <laughs> That's got to be true. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a story behind I'm that. sure there is. Number five, in New Jersey, it is illegal to slurp your soup. True or false? No, all New Jersey, I'd slurp their soup. That's false. Uh, sorry, wrong, it's true. Oh. Number six, in Louisiana, it is illegal to gargle in public. True or false? Oh, no. Gargle in public? Yes. I'm going to say false. Uh, it's true. <laughs> and the final one, number seven in Alabama, it is illegal to drive with your feet. True or false? <laughs> true. False. <laughs> you are on a roll. However, uh, well. it is illegal to drive blindfolded in Alabama. That's good to know. Yeah. I show <laughs> that you got three out of seven, old dog. Back to the drawing board for that one. Well, I will study before the next episode, as long as you tell me what it's going to be. And you really think it's going to make any difference? <laughs> Not a bit. <laughs> yeah, okay. We are increasingly opening up to chatbots like Alexa to answer questions. But would you open up to a chatbot therapist? This pod nugget is from the BBC News for April 3rd, 2023. As you may have experienced, artificial intelligence software is becoming more sophisticated. The answers we receive from Alexa and Siri are becoming more sound and complete. Computer programmer Eugenia Kaida is the founder of Replica, a chatbot company. Replica offers users an AI companion who cares, always here to listen and talk, always on your side. With friends like that, who needs friends like us? The company has more than 2 million active users. Each user has a unique chatbot that learns from their conversations together. Some people use their replica chatbot to practice for job interviews. 
or maybe to talk about politics, or even as a marriage counselor. Ms. Kaita says Replica should be viewed as a companion rather than a therapist, but that sounds like a statement to limit liability rather than a clarification. Dr. Paul Marsden, a member of the British Psychological Society, says he is excited about the power of AI to make therapeutic chatbots more effective. Dr. Marsden said mental health support is based on talking therapy, and talking is what chatbots do. Based on his optimism, we should get prepared for shrink bots in the near future. Hmm. Not only can a chatbot therapist improve your mental health, they can find the best route to Cincinnati and some good restaurants on the way. Paul, I fear for our future. Yeah, sometimes I fear we don't fear enough. Les Switzer, now in his 80s, has a multifaceted career that includes journalist, educator, and minister. It all started in South Africa, where he became caught up in the struggle for equal rights in the apartheid era. So, let's. why don't we get started with your years as a journalist. What attracted you to the field of journalism? Well, that's a, a long story, but to cut it short, um, I was a precinct captain in JFK's presidential campaign. And when he was assassinated, I decided to uh, undertake an opportunity to, to leave the country. I was finally offered a job in South Africa, and um, this was 1963. I took the job, and my wife's parents didn't like it, but uh, we arrived in New Orleans with uh, to get on a freighter. Amy likes the last Freighter to all, uh, have passengers. I had five dollars in my pocket. My recollection at this time is that there was a lot of upheaval going on in South Africa, and it would seem from the outside it was a dangerous place to live. Was that your experience? No, because it was the apartheid government in the sixties was was very very strong. Still, it was at the height of the apartheid government. They didn't know what to do with me. Basically, they refused to allow me to, to teach social studies. So uh, I ended up teaching art, which I knew nothing about art. But then again, these peop- these kids were, were uh, throwaways anyway. They were white, all white kids, of course. And that's when I learned the way in which things were done in South Africa. Now, at, at this point, Nelson Mandela was in prison. Is that correct? Yes, he was in Robben Island. And was was there any mention of him in society? Was he worse? No. no, there was this, as if the whole black history thing was wiped out. Um, yeah, there was no in the mainstream press. There was nothing about black South Africa other, other than the laws that were passed. Uh, but anyway, I, I had moved to um, Peter Maritzburg, which is the provincial capital of, of the province of Natal, and there I I became a newspaper person. Um, again, serendipitously, but um, uh, I learned journalism that way, and I loved it. It was the first time I'd ever even been exposed to being an actual professional journalist, and I absolutely loved it. I would I would spend like six or even seven days if I could there, do, working free, learning photography, learning journalism. From there, um, I moved to Johannesburg. And I worked on what was then called the world. 
it was a black newspaper. I, I did it deliberately. Uh, they loved having me. I was made a features editor. The Black Inhabitants of Soweto, which is an acronym for the Southwestern Townships. And it was there that I really got introduced to African politics, which was totally illegal, of course. We weren't allowed to go into Soweto. The, the actual offices of the world were outside Soweto, but we went in often, usually with funerals. Africans died like flies. And uh, it was a privilege to bring white journalists, in this case, into the funeral. I, I must have attended in, in the year I was there, seven funerals. And um, eventually, um, we had, you know, very little money. We wanted to go back to the States. So we went back to the States where I landed up in with the Herald Examiner, which was a newspaper, metropolitan newspaper in Los Angeles. I got that job because they thought I was so exotic that I, that maybe I, I would fit in with them. Main thing there was the Manson killing. We covered that. That was interesting. Um, in those days, uh, there was also a lot of turmoil in America. It was very interesting because I was probably one of the youngest uh, there, and um, the six years was really my, my tutelage in, in journalism, in American journalism. And I learned a lot in that. And then eventually, um, from there, I moved into the academic world because by then time, I had a PhD. I had worked part-time to get a PhD to finish my PhD. So there were very few journalists teaching who had PhDs at that time, very rare. So I was offered a job at Cal State LA in Los Angeles. And from there, it was great because these were the Vietnam War veterans coming in and really shaking up the university. Absolutely <laughs> shaking up big time than me. I I voted against myself, but they elected me the chair of the department, which was, I was the youngest one in the university at that stage. And it was from there that I was recruited to go back to South Africa, open, help open up the first English language department of journalism in the Southern Hemisphere, a place called Rhodes University, which was then in the province of the Eastern Cape. And how long were you back in South Africa? About 10 to 12 years, uh, 11 years, I think. And again, those were years of uh, people, a lot of change going on. A lot of change, yeah. Now, at this time, politically, what was going on in the yeah. Okay, let's get, in, let's get into the political activism, yeah. We got involved with the local township. I began to negotiate with the with the government authorities the possibility because under apartheid it's separate but equal theoretically. Well, in this in this situation, separate but equal, I said it's separate but unequal. I went down to Cape Town and buttonholed the MPs, the Nationalist MPs in Cape Town, and I said, "Look, this is unequal." I said. There's no journalism program in any of the, of the so-called Bantustan universities that they had set up for Africans. And of course, as Calvinists, they all were Calvinists, they agreed. It is unequal. 
and they I went to the Minister of Bantu Education, actually, the national, you know, the cabinet post, and he agreed. So we brought in Africans, little basic, but it was a thin inch of the wed. From that, I got involved in the local African politics. One of the youth activists was killed, and a funeral set aside for them. Now, African funerals in the 1970s were not funerals. They were funerals, literally, but they were far more than that. And we knew this was going to happen. So I called for volunteers amongst the students. I said, we're going to cover this funeral, but it's only on a volunteer basis. Well, most of the equivalent to the senior class bought in. The funeral was going to be held at the, in a, like at a bowl in a valley in the bottom. So we stationed a television set up on the, on the hill above, and we got ready for the thing. Meanwhile, the police, of course, knew this was going to happen. So it was a military command. It was not just the local police. It was the armed forces. The funeral occurred. The writing started in the funeral. After, soon after the funeral, I got the kids out. I don't know how the other two, I can't remember exactly how they got out, but he got out eventually. Riding occurred throughout the townships. The fires were burning for three days. About four people were killed. From that, we covered the thing, as I said before, so we knew who the ringleaders were, during and after the event. We then published it. I smuggled it out of the country to England. I uh, was invited by the British government to go on a lecture tour, which I did. And the Americans asked me to come over there, and it turned out to be a lecture tour in Britain and in America. And that resulted in my eventual move to America. You know, Les, I, I would like to uh, get to your third career. Okay. Uh, you, you actually had a long and flourishing career as a teacher and as a lecturer. And during that time, went back and forth between uh, the United States and South Africa. But at right. some point, was it 2000, you retired from teaching? Is that correct? I also had a heart attack, major one, a widow maker. It was a miracle that I survived, actually, and survived as well as I did. Um, and as a consequence, I decided to radically alter my life. I started going to seminary. And uh, that morphed into a diligent uh, stint where I ended up in the Houston Graduate School of Theology, which was then a Quaker institution. At the same time, I was determined to complete a degree, and I, would, I was interested in chaplaincy. I then served as um, a chaplaincy, and I, I, I don't know how I got into it, but I served as a hospice chaplain. So how did you adjust to your new career as a chaplain? Well, it was very interesting because, of course, um, you had to deal with all sorts of people. So my background was perfect for this. Did you have to develop any new skills? It's a different type of learning process where you, you develop the quality of listening. There's several levels of listening, as you probably know. I can see how you developed certain skills to be an effective chaplain, but how has it affected you personally? You move to a different level where things which were once important are no longer important. I still do research, 
and writing. I have a couple of volumes. Uh, one's in press, and the other one I'm working on, I'm trying to sell now. Um, you know, very highly academic works. So I keep my foot in, but I realize that my horizons are narrowing and narrowing. And I, uh, I have to accept that. I don't have anything like the contacts, you know, all over the world. That's gone now, except for family. My life, in some way, shrunk, but it's been enriched by my uh, my relationship with the family. Well, Paul, I think we've pretty much got it covered. Is there anything else that? Uh... Uh, it's amazing to me. We did. <laughs> You've had quite a career. Yeah, quite really. Yeah, you know, I'm often ask myself if I had it to do over again, as we all probably think about this from time to time, would I've done anything differently? And Honestly, I can't say I would have. I made mistakes, big mistakes. And I wouldn't like to do those again. But the general trajectory of, of my life, I think it's that's who I am. I would have done the same thing. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.